That's my God he's singing about. Praise the Lord. Isn't this a beautiful day the Lord's given us? This is one of those Chamber of Commerce days here. I could, we could package this one. We're in a series in the book of Joshua, Taking Back What Is Ours, and we're just going through it. We're going to cover a couple chapters here today because there's a lot goes on there, but we'll, we won't, doesn't mean we're going to take forever, but we're going to look at it anyway. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 9. I want to talk about a terrible, some terrible treaties that were passed in this chapter and the results of it. So let's all read together, Joshua 9, verses 1 through 9. Okay, let's read it. <laughs> I was just testing y'all to see if you were paying attention. And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side of Jordan, in the hills, in the valleys, in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and Ai, news has traveled now, they did work wallily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent, and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua and to the camp at Gilgal and said to them and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country now, therefore make ye a league with us. We need to make a little deal, make a treaty here. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure you dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? You're not from around here then. And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are you? And from whence? Come ye, where'd you come from? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. So we've come from a long way. That was a lie, but that was their story anyway. Let's stop right there. They're fixing to make a deal. You know, Brian Harhouse sold cars for many years. Uh, Everybody knows it's more, it's different buying a car today than it was 20, 30 years ago. Uh, used to be 30 years ago or so, you'd go in there and you'd look at the stickers on the window there and then you'd talk to the salesman and you offer something and he'd counter and all and then you get a little closer, he'd go back, talk to the manager, going back to the restroom or somewhere, and, uh, <laughs> and come back and say, hey, we can't do that and whatever. And anyway, you eventually work out a deal. Nowadays, there's so much information on the Internet. They'll tell you what that car, what's a good price, fair price, great price, and all this, and you've got a lot of information at your disposal. And so it's probably a little bit different making deals today. I remember, this is probably 30, 35 years ago, we were going to buy a car in Chiefland. I'm sure it was a used car. We didn't have, but they were, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 or whatever. And uh, we could not come to an agreement with the, the salesman, we were about $500 apart. And I wasn't going to budge, and he wasn't going to budge. 
And, uh, you know, so that's not much money. Well, that's because cars today are fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000. But back then when it's ten or $15,000, that's a pretty good split. And so I just got up. He said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And so we shook hands, and me and Darlene went and got in the car driving off the lot. He come chasing us down like this <laughs> and said, uh, all right, we'll do it. He would just about let us get on the highway, almost. But he, he ran after us, and uh, we made the deal. Well, there's been some good deals I've made over my life and some very, very bad deals. Let me read you some good deals and bad deals in the history of our country. United States brought the, the Louisiana Purchase we bought from France. Now, we paid $15 million for 828,000 square miles. Now, that, today, that which was the Louisiana Purchase would make up 15 states today. We paid three cents an acre. We bought Alaska from Russia in 1867 for $7.2 million. It covered 586,412 miles. Two cents an acre. How would you like to say, I think I'm going to buy 100 acres. I'll give you $2 of Alaska. Wow. Pretty good deal. Might not have been such a big deal back then, but it sure sounds like a good deal today. Apple Computer was started by three men in 1976. Steve Jobs, he's dead now, but he owned 45% of the company. Steve Wozniak owned 45% of the company. And a third partner, Ronald Wayne, owned 10%. Now, this was 1976. Twelve days after they started Apple, Ronald Wayne got cold feet or whatever, he wanted them to buy him out. So he sold his 10% of the company to Steve Wozniak uh, for $800. Today, that $800 would be $100 billion. I think he didn't do, do a good job on that. Actually, they say the man lives in a trailer park and uh, has not been doing too good. I can see how when you make deals like that. Anyway, the Boston Red Sox, they had a pretty prominent player. In 1920, Babe Ruth played for the Boston Red Sox, and he wanted fifteen dollars or $20,000 raise. They wasn't going to do that, so they sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees in 1920 for $125,000. He went on the next year to hit 59 home runs, and until and for the next... I don't know, until 1984, the next 84 years, the Yankees won something like 27 pennants, and the Red Sox didn't win any. It turned out to be called the curse of the the Bambino or whatever. (laughs) September 2000, Blockbuster. You remember Blockbuster? We used to go rent tapes and stuff like that from Blockbuster. Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for $50 million back in 2000, because Netflix was sinking. They were losing millions. And they said, nah, we'll just let them go. We're not going to worry about Netflix. Fifteen years later, Blockbuster's out of business, and Netflix is worth $125 billion. Bad deal. Manhattan was bought from a local Indian tribe in 1626 by a Dutch governor named Peter Minuet for $24 worth of trinkets and beads. And they also got some other things, a jar of mayonnaise, a loaf of bread, two wooden clogs, and a box of Quaker oats. 
Uh, anyway, deals, deals. President Jimmy Carter, poor fellow, he didn't do many good things as president, but he did one thing that got him some notoriety. I'll say this for him. In 1979, he made a deal with Egypt's Anwar Sadat, and Egypt was the first Arab country to recognize Israel as a nation. And they made this little peace treaty there. He won a Nobel Peace Prize. Both of them won a Nobel Peace Prize for that deal they made. Well, today, Israel going to make a bad deal. Now, the Jews, the Jewish people, we got one Jewish brother here, Brother Abraham. He's a Messianic Jew. He found his Messiah. But Jews are only make up less than 4% of our population, 2 or 3%, something like that. But they receive a lot of hatred, a lot of persecution. One of the reasons people, there's several reasons. One of the reasons people don't like the Jews because they're financially, they make a lot of good deals. And they make a lot of money and they're in positions of prominence. And we use phrases like this. He tried to Jew me down. Or I got Jewed out of that piece of property. And it's a derogatory term. But this time, the Jews are going to make a very bad deal. And we're going to see the results of it. And they're going to make a terrible treaty. All right, so let's look at it today. Mistake of listening to the enemy. First of all, mistakes are a part of life. We all make mistakes. The thing is, you don't want to make the same mistake over and over again if you can help it. Mistakes comes with freedom. One of the things, because we have freedom, we have the freedom to choose. When you have the freedom to choose, you can choose good things or bad things sometimes. Mistakes are a part of life. That's why they put erasers on pencils. Because we're going to mess up sometimes and have to correct some things. My father, uh, he was really hard. Uh, I was the only son, but playing sports... He did not mind telling me, and I kind of picked that up too, telling me what I did wrong or what I was doing wrong. We were playing chiefly baseball, and I was at shortstop <clears throat> and uh, took a ground ball and threw it to first base, and it was low. He dug it out. I think we got the guy or something, but Daddy, I could hear him just like it was yesterday. Nobody else in the stands was saying a word, and he said, throw the ball, quit aiming it. Next time, next time I think I threw it up in the stands. I don't know where it went, but anyway, uh, he, did, he said, don't be timid. Do, if you mess up, mess up good. Don't, don't be timid or uh, indecisive. Well, mistakes are a part of life. We all mess up. If a dentist makes a mistake, they pull his tooth out. If a, print, if a, a lawyer makes a mistake, some poor soul has to go to prison. Uh, if an electrician makes a mistake, it can be shocking. But Joshua Conrad said this, It's only those who do nothing that make no mistakes. Now here's the problem. In this passage of Scripture, Joshua and them didn't do something, and it was a big mistake. And they're fixing to make a bad treaty with a group of people. All right, so let's look at the enemy's battle plans. We left off last week. Here's what was happening. You remember after they won the great battle of Jericho, they followed God's direction, shouted, the walls came down, they took that big city. Next little town was a little town called Ai, a little easy town, a little hick town. They wasn't even going to send but three, two or 3,000 men over there. They could take care of that. Well, they got whipped, humiliated, come back with their tail between their legs, and they didn't know what it was. It was because somebody had stolen some, had kept some of the spoils in Jericho. Plus, they never sought God when they went to attack Ai. They did it on their own. It was easy. They could handle that themselves. Okay, well, they came back last week, and they did it God's way. They repented, 
got direction from him. He, he gave them the battle plans, and they come and won a victory over Ai. After the end of that battle, they did what Moses told them to do when they got into the promised land. They went to Shechem, which is, and there's two big mountain ranges, uh, Ebal and um, Gerizim, and they were to go there in the valley there, and they were going to read the law, the blessings and the cursings of the law. They're rededicating their life to the Lord. They're coming back from uh, the debacle they had, and they're kind of recommitting themselves. So let me say this. While they're rededicating their life, the enemy's making plans for the next battle. You know that, don't you? You know, every time we get a victory, we can't just now coast the rest of the year. We can't say, ah, we got it now. He's going to leave us alone. No, he's already planning the next strategy. And uh, that's why a lot of people say, that's why I don't like to shout the victory. I'd rather him not even pay attention to me and leave me alone. No, he's going to get you one way or the other. I'd rather shout God's praise and God's victory. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to be a child of God. I'm proud to know my Jesus. So go ahead and do it. You're going to have to battle him anyway, but he's doing that while you're resting on your laurels and, and, and very happy with the victory you just had. Okay, so here's where we come to our text today. The treaty with the Gibeonites. Look at verses 3 through 5. Now, just to let you know, Logan's filling in for Julia today, and sometimes I don't even send the right stuff to him, and sometimes I, I write it down. It's supposed to be chapter 21. I put chapter 12. I get my numbers reversed. Anyway, so he's going to be filling in for her today, and so we're going to try to work through some of this. Chap uh, verses 3 through 5. Did I give you that one, Logan? Okay. We got all the time in the world right here. <laughs> but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, the word had traveled through the promised land now, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. Okay, these people are going to come with their own little plan. They're going to be pretending to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins torn and mended and old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Okay, so here's what's going on. Words filtered out. They've done whipped Ai, they whipped Jericho, and they're coming on across. And there's other kings we're going to see in a moment says, we got to have a coalition. we got to do something about this, or they're going to come after us too. They're going to come after us. We're going to have to deal with them. So some kings are joining together in a coalition, but the people from Gibeon, they said, we're going to do it this way. We're going to try to join forces with Israel. And so they come pretending to be something they were not. They said to Joshua and them, we've come from a long way off. Look at our old tattered clothes, um, the bread we had. We just got it out of the oven. Look, it's moldy now. It's been so long since we've been traveling and all this. And they're coming to make a deal. Let me show you some of the... Uh, some of the lies they're going to be doing in just a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, this is what God told them. Now, this is back Moses now. When they get into the promised land, here's what he said. When, you, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations, I already got two of them kicked out now or taken over, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall, this and this, 
make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them underline that that was that's what moses the lord told them when you get it don't make any treaties don't make any peace treaties any agreements don't cut any deals with them so these people come and they've got a deceptive plan don't you know the enemy's got a lot of plans he doesn't always come in one way or the other. He can come as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can come as an angel of light if he wants to. He'll do it whatever way he thinks. He's got a lot of disguises. Here's some of the lies that the Gibeonites told Joshua before they made this deal with him. They said in verse 4, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They, they are pretending to be royal officials of the city or whatever, the high uh, political figures or whatever, and they took old sacks on their donkeys and old, old wineskins torn and mended. So they've dressed up like officials, but they're w- worn and tattered and torn. Here's what they said in verse 8. But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They're not giving out anything. They just said, We're here to serve you. Look at verse 9. Another lie. They said to them, We from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. We've come from a long way off. They come from just over the hill. <laughs> they wasn't far away, but they're, they're putting on a big act. And then they says this in verse 12. The bread of ours we took hot. We got bread hot out of the oven for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come. And now look, it's all dry and moldy. Now, they've really, this Academy Award winning uh, performance, these people have come, they've really doing whatever it is. Because here's why because they've heard what God had done in Egypt 40 years ago. They've already heard what he's done in Jericho now that they're in the land of promise. They've heard what he did in Ai. So they said, we've got to do something or we're next. They only got two choices uh, uh, facing them. They're either, and their chances are slim or none or surviving if they don't make a deal. So they make a deal. Now, the mistake that was making, look at verse 14 and 15. This is where, this is where we really, uh, Joshua and the people got off track. Here's what it said. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Once again, we'll take care of this ourselves. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Now, it's a big thing. Very big things going on right here. They've made a big mistake. They didn't seek the Lord. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your paths. When you don't trust in the Lord or or go to the Lord with questions and and direction and guidance, you will go to your own understanding. And a lot, of people, a lot of people say, I don't need to present this to God. I can handle this. He gave me a brain. I can figure things out. I can do this. I can do that. Well, we think we can, but we can mess up too. I can promise you that. You'll miss God two ways. You'll either get ahead of God or you'll lag behind God when you're not trusting in Him. You're doing it your own way. If you lag behind God, you're going to miss your opportunities. It's going to come and go because you didn't have the faith to, to walk with Him. If you go ahead of him, that's called presumption, you're going to make a fool of yourself and you're going to have to eat a lot of crow because you didn't seek God. Look what Exodus 34, 12 has to say. It says this, 
Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. So God's been warning them over, don't go in there making any agreements with it. Well, they did it anyway because they didn't seek God or seek the counsel of God. Uh, and then they realized they made a bad deal. These people lied to us, and we've done made an agreement and committed ourselves to them. And that is all based on a lie. But look what it said in verse 16. They found out about it, and it happened at the end of three days. After three days, they found out that they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. They'd live right over the hill. And they were the next ones probably they were going to defeat. And now they've done made an alignment with these people and made an agreement, and it's, it's a big thing. Now, I want to look at the power of a promise. This goes through verses 18 through 27. I'm not going to read all that. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to tell you what's going on there. I want to show you something. Here's something we've lost track of today. The power of our words. The price of a promise. You've got to have everything done in 14, 15 pages of small print, and you've got to get lawyers to look at it, and you've got to do this. You used to could do things with a handshake. My word's good as my bond. If I tell you something, I'm going to do it. That's no longer, but that was, that's the power of your words, and that's the way God looks at it. That ain't the way we look at it today. That's how God looks at it. Now, a lawyer today would say, tear up this treaty. You don't have to do that. These people lied. It was built on fraud, built on a false premise. So this, this contract is null and void. God says, no, it's not. You done committed to them, and you gave an oath to them. Now you stuck with it. Now, that's a concept we can't conceive of today in this land of lawyers. That's, that's something that runs throughout the Bible. Let me just give you a couple examples. You remember Daniel. Daniel was right up there next to King Darius, the Mede and Persian Empire. He was way up there, his right-hand man. But the other officials didn't like Daniel. They were jealous, so they knew he was committed to God. So they went to the King Darius and said, look, Let's make a decree that for the next 30 days, nobody can pray to any god except you. And if they do, the, they get caught, we're going to throw them in the lion's den. Well, they knew Daniel. He prayed to God three times a day, and he did it. And they caught him. They said, Daniel broke the oath, broke the promise. And even though the king was good friends with Daniel, he threw him in the lion's den because he said it, the law of the Medes and Persians. Here's another example. King Saul. King Saul, they were, they'd been fighting the Philistines, and his son was named Jonathan. That was David's best friend, and Jonathan was a great warrior. He was, he was the best warrior they had. Anyway, King Saul made a, a statement one day when they were fighting or whatever. He says, I don't want anybody to eat anything the rest of the day. Anybody that we find that's eating something, that hadn't fasted, they're going to be dead. Jonathan wasn't around when he gave that order, and Jonathan was out there and he saw some honey and he got and ate some honey and some of the other soldiers said your daddy said anybody eat anything that's it well they come back together anyway they're getting ready for another battle and Saul sought the Lord looking for direction and God said there was some problem and he said well there's a problem here we got to find out what it is make a long story short looked like Jonathan and Jonathan said yeah I ate some honey the other day you said anybody ate anything going to be dead killed i didn't hear the i didn't even hear the command but i ate some ignorantly and what saul say okay you're gonna die he's gonna kill his own son 
because of a stupid promise. That was the power of your words. When you said something, the only, only thing that saved Jonathan was all the men in the army. They said, you're not killing him. And they come up against Saul, and he didn't. But he's ready to kill him. Now, I'm going to show you something, the power of a promise, this treaty right here. Once you leave the book of Joshua, I don't know how many more years after where we are right now, you come to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is about 360 years of chaos. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and uh, just terrible, kind of like we're living today. 360 years. After the book of Judges, they get their first king. They don't want Samuel's boys. They want a king, and they elect, or they appoint, Saul gets appointed the king. After Saul was King David. Now, this is probably 400, 450 years after this little treaty with the Gibeonites. David says, what's going on? They've been in a drought and a famine for three years. And he goes to the Lord and says, what is going on? Why aren't you blessing us? Why aren't you sending your rain and stuff to us? And here's what he said. I'll just let the word speak to you in 2 Samuel 21. 1 through 6. Now listen to this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, this is why you got a famine. It's because Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. What? Call, I mean, Saul killed these Gibeonites. This is 400-something years afterwards, after this treaty. He said, because of that, you broke their treaty, your promise to them, you're, you're suffering the consequences of it. I won't even go through the rest of it. So we're talking about when you give your word, it meant something. It meant something to God. Now, when the, when the Israelites heard that uh, Joshua and the leaders had made this treaty with these people, they were, they were mad. They were very aggravated. Verse 18, it says, you know, they were saying, why in the world? Uh, did you do this? This is going to cost us a lot of money. You say, well, how is it going to cost the money because you made this treaty with these people? Well, every time Israel conquers one of these cities, they get to keep the spoils now. And now you've got to share it with the Gibeonites. And here's another thing. Anytime the Gibeonites get attacked, you've got to go fight for them. Kind of sounds like the United Nations or something, doesn't it? We're kind of, we're kind of part of a coalition now. If they have something go over there, then we got to go there and defend them, and they're supposed to defend us and all this kind of stuff. That's, they're very aggravated. The people begin to murmur and complain, and they're mad at their leaders. Your leaders can get you in a mess. You know that? All of us could say amen to that, I think. Uh, somebody said, yeah, but the Bible says we're supposed to pray uh, to save our country. We've got to pray for our leaders. Well, I look at our leaders, and I pray for the country. Because uh, it's a it's a it's a very difficult situation we're in. But anyway, here's what comes on comes on down to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 9 says this. Then all the rulers, all the leaders, said to the congregation, "We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore, we cannot we can't touch them. We've given our commitment to them. This we will do. We'll let them live." lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear to them, swore to them. He says, we can't, we can't take it back. Even though it was built on a lie and we, we were snookered, we made this deal so we can't kill them. We can't wipe them out. We've, we've entered into an agreement with them. But what we're going to do is make them slaves or we're going to make them work and so forth. So they did that. Okay, that's chapter 9. 
Now we're coming into chapter 10 and see what's going to happen now. They're fixing to go into a battle. I told you these other kings saw what they were doing in Jericho and Ai, and they're bringing a coalition together. They're going to say, we're going to band together and come against them. They can pick us off one at a time, but if we come together, we get them. And they're really ticked off at the Gibeonites. They said, I heard the Gibeonites done made a deal with them, and now they, they could have been part of our coalition, and now they're, we're going to have to fight against them along with the Israelites. So they were really aggravated there. So they were mad. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter, of chapter 10. And it came to pass when Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and so he had done to Ai and its king, and, that, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with them. They're aggravated now. Made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. They said, now we've got more against us. So they said, we're going after Gibeon. We're going to go attack them and uh, see what they do. So he's got all these kings together, all these different nations or tribes together, and they've come together, and they're going to fight against the Gibeonites. Now here's the problem. Since Israel's got a uh, covenant with them, they've got to go fight because the Gibeonites are being attacked. Okay, so anyway, here's the battle plan. God ordered, he told Joshua in, in, in chapter, in verse 8, he says, don't worry about it, fear not. I'm going to give them over to you. You're going to win. You're going to take over this thing. Don't worry, I'm, I'm on your side. Okay, so he gives them the battle plans. They're going to attack at night, and uh, they're going to ambush them in different things. Now, the Gibeonites are about 25 miles away from where the Israelites were. So they got to walk 25 miles to get into a battle. What kept them going? How would you like to walk 25 miles and then after the 25-mile walk you got to fight? Well, the thing that kept them going was the promise of God. God says, when you get there to fight them, you're going to win. I'm going I'm to fight for you. I'll fight with you. You're going to win. Don't worry about it. Folks, the, the promises of God is what keeps all of us going. Standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. And they're, stand, they're going now on the promises of God that God's going to lead them, and they're going to fight these five nations, these five kings. And they get there and they chase them out of Dodge. They whoop them. And they're doing a good job. And then God begins to get involved. He starts sending hailstones. I don't know if I put this up there or not. Yeah, verse 11, there it is. And it happened as they fled before Israel. They're, they got them on the run. They're running them out of Dodge. As they fled before Israel and were on the road of the, the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as, as Azekai, and they died. There were more who, kill, who were killed from the hailstorms than the children of Israel killed with the sword. God said, I'll be in on this. Now, that's a miracle. That's just as much a miracle as the Red Sea opening and or, or the Jordan River opening. That is a miracle. Y'all know how I am about miracles. I don't call everything a miracle. Now, people that say it was a miracle I remembered or it's a miracle I got up on time, that's not a miracle. That cheapens what a miracle is. And that makes God mighty small. If, if everything we call a miracle, then our God is so small because we're trying to help him look good and calling everything a miracle. 
A miracle is when God suspends the laws of nature. It's different than healings and stuff. This is when God says, I'm going to do something that is completely against natural law and everything else. It's a miracle. He's sending hailstones. Here's the second part of the miracle. The only one's getting hit, the enemy. <laughs> when it hails, it hails. Whenever one of the uh, plagues in Egypt of the ten plagues, one of them was hailstones. But here's what Moses, God told Moses, Moses told the people, hail's coming, get your animals and get undercover or you won't be spared. It was coming down to everybody. Now here, God says, I can, I can pinpoint who needs to be hit with a hailstone. And the Israelites are out there running and chasing them, and just the, just the enemy's getting hit. You know, the Bible says God does a lot with these hailstones. Uh, in Revelation 16, 21, when the wrath of God's being poured out and the seven bowls of wrath, one of them's going to be great hailstones that weigh 100 pounds apiece. I don't care how good a roof you have on your house. You get 100,000 of those coming down, it's going to be splinters for long. So here's what he did. He, attacked, he sent a miracle, sent these hailstones. The hailstones just hit the enemy. And then we come to the longest day. Now, in World War II, the longest day, everybody remembers that was D-Day when they stormed the beaches of Normandy. They're fixing to go to a long day. They're fighting. They're winding up this battle. It's getting late in the day. They've got these kings on the run. Hailstones coming, everything. Joshua says, God, we need just a little more time to wrap this up. That's one thing I can say I can identify with Joshua. Have you ever been on a job where you've worked all day and you've got about an hour left and it's getting late? And you tell everybody, hey, let's just stay here and, and work and finish this and rather than come back in the morning and finish this hour. I'd rather go ahead and finish it while we're here. That's what Joshua saying. He said, we're already here fighting. Let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. God, we need the sun to stand still or go back. Now, wow. It's amazing. This is another tremendous miracle. This is the first daylight saving time right here. Uh, they needed to finish it. Now, how do you explain the sun standing still? Well, that's not hard to me. Yeah, but this whole universe is like a fine Swiss watch. It's everything is, works completely together. You stop the sun for an hour, it throws everything in chaos. Well, let me tell you something. I'm 67 years old. I have never lost one minute sleep wondering how God could do that. If my God says there's billions of stars out there and he knows them all by name, if he can take the hollow hand and hollow out the oceans, if he can look back and see the end from the very beginning, if he can hear all of our prayers and, and have the answer for each one, whatever it might be, he can handle this. I can promise you that. And so the sun stood still. It's, this is the last recorded miracle in the book of Joshua, like this. It was amazing. Well, anyway, he give them that. He did that. The kings ran, and they ran into a cave, and they found out they were in that cave, so they put a big stone in front of the cave. Joshua said, go ahead and stone them up in there. We'll come back to them in a minute. They went ahead and took care of all the other people, killed them, wiped them out. Then they went to the caves to take the stone away, bring those five kings out. Those boys knew their days was over. Here's what's hard for a lot of people to swallow, too. 
he made the kings come out and get down on the ground. He said, put your foot on their neck. That's what he said. Put your foot on their neck. Just humiliate them. Let them know they have been overtaken. After he puts his foot on their neck and humiliates them, then he kills them. Hangs them, spears, lings them up on a pole to humiliate them. That just seems so cruel. Well, I, I don't know what it seems like, but I'm going to tell you this. If you studied the Roman, in the, the Roman Empire, when the Romans would go and wipe out a nation, they would come back and there would be a parade. They would have the, the women, children, the elderly people that weren't fighting, line the streets because the army was coming back with the victory. The first ones in the line would be the, the generals, the leaders, the officers. After them would be the fighting men. There would be people dancing, music playing, horns blowing, all kinds. It was a great celebration. The last would be the prisoners, the prisoners of war. They would be beaten and battered, tied together, laughed at, mocked. They were making a public display of them. We have humiliated y'all. We've defeated y'all. We're number one. Now, that's hard to swallow. It doesn't seem fair, and it seems like not good sportsmanship. I don't care what you say, but I want to tell you this. That's what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to read you. I'm going to read. He said, I'm not here just to. See, a lot of people have got this mindset, and it's very wrong, that God and Satan are equal foes. Satan wins some, God wins some, but they're battling it out. It ain't even close to that. He's been totally humiliated and defeated. Let me just read you four scriptures. Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity, this is the first prophecy in the Bible, put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to crush, he's, he said, I'm here to crush the enemy. Here's what he said in, in 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Uh, listen, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Didn't say he's going to try, try to get you all a few victories here. And he said, I'm here to destroy him and the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, listen to this. Insomuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. He said, I've come to destroy. That is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I've come to destroy everything about him. Here's one more. Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities, this is our Lord, and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He said, I'm here to, to tell you this victory is complete. This defeat is sure. I've got my foot on his neck, on his head. I've defeated him. I want you all to understand where, where we're at. That's what he's trying to get across to them. See, this, this, you say, how do you tie things in the Old Testament into the New Testament? Well, there's a lot of ways, but here's what I'm saying is, this is a picture of the church in many ways. Chapter 9 they made a bad deal. They compromised. They did what God said they shouldn't do, and they made a deal with one of those, pe those people, and they got locked into an, uh, 
a treaty they shouldn't have been into. Do you know the church has compromised today? The church has made a lot of compromises trying to be all things to all people in a way that's gotten away from God's Word. And we've got in a position now where we've been, we're in a compromised state. Now, the only hope is to come out of that. The se- chapter 10, after they realize they messed up and they left God out of their plans and they did things their own way, chapter 10, God says, okay, I'm going to fight for you. You've gotten back in shape. You've gotten back in line. And God says, I'll fight this battle for you. Here's where we are today. The church, by and large, today is compromised. When I say we need to pray for our nation, we need to pray for the church just as much as we need for the lost sinners. I mean, this darkness is everywhere, but the church has allowed a lot of things. I'm going to, read, I'm going to show you a little one-minute clip, and then I'm going to wind this up. This is it's talking about uh, the condition of the church, and where it's a letter to God's church. Uh, Eric Metaxas. I'm convinced that the American church has arrived at a significant moment of truth. We are only 75, 80 years removed from three separate regimes that killed 60 to 70 million people intentionally. The parallels with where the American church is now to where the German church stood in the face of the Nazi regime are unavoidable and grim. Churches need to understand really what Marxism is, which is to destroy the church, to destroy the word of God. So if you capture the seminaries, you capture the pastors, you capture the laity, you capture the soul of the world. Christianity is not just about saying Jesus loves you and then going to heaven one day, but that there's a war that's raging. The church is weakening, which is why Marxism is ascendant in America today. This is the hour of the American church. Let me say this, and I'm going to wind this down. Chapter 10, verse 14, when it talked about this battle, Joshua and those five kings, those five different tribes and nations, it said there'd never been a day like that in history, before or after, when God obeyed the voice of a man. Talking about the sun stopping and everything. I get a prophecy newsletter, and they said something that was very interesting. I don't know how true it is, but it's something that got my attention. April 8th of this year. Now, that's my sister Ginger's birthday, but other than that, there's a big event taking place that day. It's an eclipse. Everybody's heard about the, it's called the Great American Eclipse. Y'all remember in 2017, there was an eclipse that came across uh, America. Here's what the researcher said. The eclipse in 2017 crossed over seven United States locations named Salem. Salem, Oregon, Salem, Idaho, Idaho, Salem, Wyoming, Salem, Nebraska, Salem, Missouri, Salem, Kentucky, and Salem, South Carolina. Now, Salem is a short version of Jerusalem. Okay, here's what he said. This is very unusual. This time, it's coming a different direction. That time, it came from the northwest kind of down towards the southeast. This time, it's kind of going from the southwest up towards the the northeast in that general direction 
And it's going to cross over seven locations called Nineveh. Nineveh, Texas. Nineveh, Missouri. Nineveh, Indiana. Nineveh, Ohio. Pennsylvania. And even the edge of of Virginia and New York. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was built by Nimrod, Genesis 10, I believe it was. Uh, And it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. God sent Jonah to Nineveh and said, y'all got 40 days to repent or judgment's coming uh, to y'all. Now, a lot of people believe science, I didn't realize this, they concluded there was an eclipse on June 15th 763 B.C., which they think is right about the time when Jonah went to Nineveh. I don't know that for sure. But we do know this about Jonah. He, he reigned or he ruled or reigned during the reign of Jer- Jeroboam II, and his rule was from 786 to 746. And 763, right in the middle of that, is when the eclipse took place. They've got records on that. And a lot of people think, well, that, that might have helped the Ninevites, there's a picture of it, you see it. He said, that might have helped the Ninevites repent. God give them one last wake-up call. Of course, it didn't last long. What I'm saying, what he's saying, is this God's final warning to America and her church? Get your act together, or you ain't going to get me any more chances. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it got my attention, and I will say this. We definitely are in an age of compromise. And it's going to take repentance for the church to wake up and be what the church has got to be. If God's going to do something in the life of the church, it'll take, it'll take repentance. And here we are kind of like Joshua. We know the days are getting close. Kind of what we're saying, Lord, just hold back the sun for just a little bit longer. Give us a little more time and we'll finish this thing up. I don't know. I don't know. I know this, clouds are getting dark, and people don't get in the ark, starting to see some raindrops. We got to wake up, come out of our age of compromise, admit where we failed, where we wronged, and say, God, give us just a little more time before you wind it all up. I don't know if he will or not, but maybe he's saying, I'm giving you but you're going to have to do something with it. I want you to stand with me. You can bow your heads with me. We'll close. I will say this. I know I've preached mostly to the church, but you may be here today and may not be a part of the church. You may be lost. You may not be a a child of God. Maybe you've played church. Maybe you've heard about it all your life, but you cannot say that you've been born again. If there's any, anybody here today would raise your hand and say, I don't believe I'm right with God. I don't know where I stand with God. We'll give you a moment. I'll speak to you first. If anybody here, raise your hand if you're not ashamed. And God can do a work in your life even this morning. And you can leave here different than when you came here. And here's my message to the church. Are you a compromised Christian? 
Have you made treaties with the enemy that God said no? And now you're suffering the consequences of some of those treaties? You're in battles now that you didn't think you'd be in because of compromise. You're going to have to do like Joshua and the leaders. They had to admit, Lord, Lord, we've messed up. We didn't seek you. We didn't direct you. Now we're locked into a treaty for the rest of our life. God can set you free. God can set us free from some of the bad decisions we made, but you've got to admit it, and you've got to, you've got to let him have it. If not, you'll just continue in that. So, Heavenly Father, we pray today for these, your people. I pray, God, that you would speak to every heart and life here today. I pray as we close out these last two or three minutes, anybody here today says, I'm a compromiser. Maybe I've, maybe I've tried too hard to bend over backwards to be friends and let down my guard and got away from God's word and maybe did things on my own and I need to do some things right myself. If you're here today, you can come and we can pray. Because I'm telling you, if the sun doesn't stand still, it's going to wind up. And it's going to be the judgment of God for so many people. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for these, your people here today. You see every heart and every life. Help us, Lord, not just to come here to be entertained, to be a spectator, but help us to come here, say, Lord, what are you saying to me? To me, where have I made treaties in my life? And now I'm bound and never realized that I was lied to and I believed a lie. Father, I pray for your people here today. May the church truly wake up because if the church doesn't awaken, the church is not revived, there's no hope for the world. We are still the light of the world and the salt of the earth. God, I pray, open up our eyes, open up our hearts. May we leave here, Lord, not the same way we came, drawing a line in the sand and say, God, here I am. Renew me. Take me. Father, we bless your name today, and we pray to, as we come back tonight to sing your praises, I pray, God, we'll come with a heart that's clean, a heart that's pure, because of the great grace of God once again and your faithfulness to us. We ask all of this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.